Thank you all for tuning in to Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. Me and my podcast are proud members of the syndicated C-Suite Network. So with that, today we're going to have a, a bit of a different conversation. My guest today is Dr. Neil Thompson, and he is a avid reader and prolific writer who has this interesting way of understanding what leadership is and the power of a culture. And so oftentimes as either HR professionals or as leaders, we are constantly wondering about the culture and how do we create cultures that are additive and virtuous so that the cycle is a positive one and that we can have sustaining um, business results that serve not just the community, but the employees and the stakeholders who invest in our companies. This idea of how we move through the world and think about leadership is shifting. And I've said this before, we are shifting in our thinking. We are shifting in how we view the world. And this conversation is specifically geared to try and understand some of the nuances of what those shifts are, and then give you some tips on how you can understand what's happening and then move forward so that you can be the best person that you um, that you want to be. So with that, let me introduce Dr. Neil Thompson. Dr. Neil, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, where are you at? I'm based in Wales in the UK. So I, I wanted to kind of lean in on this. You know, we've had conversations offline about the authentic reader. And I wanted to give you a chance. Tell me about this idea and how you can't believe and you talk to other executives about what an authentic leader is. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm very interested in the idea of authenticity from its sort of philosophical background. I uh, studied French when I was at school and we were reading uh, French novels as part of the course. And I'm not really a novels type of person. I'm much more into nonfiction than fiction. And so my teacher recommended that I read um, the existentialist writers, Sartre, Camus, de Beauvoir, and so on. And that introduced me to this idea of authenticity, which basically means recognizing the importance of taking ownership of your choices and your actions. So a key part of the existentialist idea of authenticity is that there are always choices. Mm. However restricted our circumstances may be, there's always a choice in terms of how we respond to those circumstances. And choices have consequences. Mm -hmm. So the idea of authenticity in that sense is about how you tune in, in a sense, to the choices you're making because often we make choices without realizing we're doing so. So being aware of what choices we're making and what consequences they have, and then taking ownership of that. Now, as I progressed through my career, I got more interested in management and leadership issues, partly because by this time I was a manager and was expected to be a leader. And I started reading stuff around the authentic leader. And I just wasn't happy with it at all. It just didn't sit comfortably with me for two reasons. One was that it was used, this literature was using the idea of authenticity in a way that implied that there is somehow a real self, oh, yeah. uh, a true self underpinning who we are. Um, and so 
in a nutshell, the sort of this idea of authentic leadership that emerged was it's all about being a leader who gets in touch with his or her real self. Mm -hmm. And as far as existentialist thought is concerned, there isn't a real self in that sense. If we think of ourselves as being on a journey through our lives, the traditional sense is that we have a real self that is on that journey through life. But to the existentialists, there isn't that real self. The journey is who we are. Mm -hmm. We're constantly evolving. We're constantly becoming. We are constantly moving, as it were, through our lives, which is an idea that is not new. Of course, it goes back to the ancient Greeks who talked about um, this, this idea. You know, if you dip your toe in a river, for example, any time you do that, it's a different river because that river is constantly flowing. It's constantly mm -hmm. moving, changing, and so on. So for me, this idea that uh, proper leadership is where you get in touch with a non-existent real self was just nonsense, basically. But I, th I felt as well, the second thing I thought was important about it was it wasn't mentioning the idea of authenticity as I saw it. Yeah. The idea that authenticity means being aware of what choices are you making and what are the consequences. So my idea of authentic leadership that emerged from this was that to be an authentic leader, what you need to do is to be authentic to your own beliefs and values, to your own goals, um, and to, as I say, take ownership of your choices and their consequences. But not only that, also to instill that in the people that you are um, managing, the people you are leading, mm -hmm. to encourage them to be aware of what choices they are making and what those consequences are. Mm -hmm. For example, uh, one aspect of, of bad management is where a manager barks instructions to an employee and the employee just does what they're told unthinkingly, right. uncritically, because basically they don't want to get in trouble. They don't want to fall out with their manager. And what that does is stifles creativity. It uh, prevents learning and development. And so it may get the job done in a very simplistic sort of way, mm -hmm. but it's not really an effective way of managing people. And it's certainly not leadership. But if you encourage people to think for themselves, to recognize the choices they're making, think through the consequences, then that's a much healthier approach to management and leadership as far as I'm concerned. Well, it also dovetails back into, you know, a couple of things that uh, my listeners have probably heard me say over and certainly my clients have heard me say over and over um, again is that one, you're not the person that you were when you were eight. You're not the person that you uh, were at 16. You're not the person that yep. you're going to be at 20. And you're not the person that you're going to be at 70. We are constantly evolving yep. um, in our process, in our thinking, because of the experiences that happen to us and the way we view those experiences. And, and the nice piece of what I love is, is that is very additive to what, you're, to what I've been thinking is this idea of it is that we are growing. We are always learning. And it is about the choices that we make and the two together and the ability to be able to understand that we are learning and that we have a responsibility to learn and to grow 
you know, brings in things like Carol Dweck's growth mindset ideas, and it kind of pulls everything together in what seems logical to me as I've been trying to figure out how to pull back and help leaders understand. Here's kind of a question. You gave us a nice sense of how you got into this, and your ideas definitely are a bit upstream in terms of where they're at. They're not the norm and the way people think about leadership. I mean, if you pull down 15 leadership books, they all talk about you have to have a growth mindset, but you also have to understand who you are today. And Or they pivot to the values conversation. Know your values, live your values, et cetera, et cetera. Which are all components of, as I hear you talk about it. When you present, uh, when you speak to large groups, when you're talking to your clients who are leaders in companies, what's their first reaction? Yeah, well, I think that their, their reaction is uh, normally a positive one because okay. the way I tend to do it when I'm talking to groups of people one-to-one one -one is to begin with where they are starting from. Okay. Um, to actually look at, that what if, for example, if I'm presenting at a conference, then what is the theme of the conference? Mm -hmm. If I'm talking to a team of senior managers because they want me to um, consult with them about a problem they're experiencing, then I would start with their focus mm -hmm. and then weave my ideas into that. Okay. So that it makes more sense to them. Um, and so, uh, people normally will, will react quite positively. They particularly seem to like the idea of um, ownership because what is so common in so many organizations is that there are huge pressures um, and it's very easy for things to go wrong. And if you're not careful, what develops is a blame culture. Yeah. There is assumption something's gone wrong Therefore, there must be somebody to blame. Right. And uh, so the idea of ownership then becomes distorted. It becomes oversimplified into ownership means who can we blame? Yeah. And, and that's not where I'm coming from. Because normally when something goes wrong, it is for a combination of, meeting, of reasons. It's the coming together of a variety of causes um, and so, to my mind, what an effective leader should be doing is looking holistically at the situation in terms of what were the various factors that led to this going wrong, rather than simplistically saying, who do we pin this on? Who do we blame? But that sort of blame culture is very, very common, and it's very, very destructive, and people try to move away from it. And I think this idea of ownership rather than blame helps them to move away from that uh, negative destructive idea of we've got to pin this on somebody uh, so it encourages more honesty and openness uh, for example one of the things i've been involved with over the years is uh, helping uh, organizations to um, improve the quality of learning in the organization mm -hmm. and a lot of the time there are obstacles to learning in an organization's culture like what um, uh, like a blame culture for example okay you know if if you were my boss for example and i think you are going to be looking if anything goes wrong you're going to be looking for a way to blame me yeah then i'm not going to be focusing on how can i be the best employee possible 
how can I do the job to the best of my ability? How can I learn, grow, develop? I'm going to be thinking, how do I keep this person off my back? Yeah. How do I defend myself from the likely attack? Looking for scapegoats, right? Yeah. But I find that most cultures are built on a system or most organizations have a system of not so much the heavy-handed scapegoating um, kind of idea, but this subtle way of how we do performance evaluations that um, one, we praise people who are doing the projects and they focus on project work. But as you mentioned before, there's a system in which um, we learn how to work together. It's, it's the culture itself. Yeah. And that there's these subtle things, these subtle um, um, policies and procedures that constantly point people to who did it, who didn't do their job. Yes. Who is the one thing, if you had just been smarter, louder, better eloquent in your speech, the heroic leader, we would not have gotten into this. So, yes. so do you find that? And, and so how do you help a leader actually see that it's, it's not just how they interact with individuals, but institutionally, policy-wise, procedures-wise, that the culture is one that may be, even if I say, look, I want you to tell me the truth. I want you to, you know, let's have a transparent conversation the system or the cultural? Well, for me, I think there's two issues there or two sets of issues. First thing is what I often find myself doing with people is challenging what I call monocausal thinking. Ah. And what I mean by monocausal thinking is um, we tend to assume that where something goes wrong, there is a single reason for it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there is. You know, if somebody sets fire to a building, then the fact that they set fire to the building is the cause. Right. Um, but um, most things are much more complex than that. Where something happens, it usually happens for a set of reasons that come together. Mm -hmm. um, some people talk about, for example, what they call confluence theory. And what confluence theory means is trying to move away from monocausal thinking towards recognizing that where something happens, it's a confluence. It's bringing together different causes and that leads me then into my second point which is one of the major factors in terms of those causes will be the culture itself mm -hmm. because cultures are more powerful than individuals mm -hmm. part of my work with leaders over the years has been to help them understand that if they try and fight a culture they will lose that cultures are more powerful than individuals so if if they are not happy with the culture then what they need to do is change that culture. And yeah. for me, that's a key element of leadership is having the knowledge, the skills and the values to be able to shape a culture in a positive direction. I mean, if I give you an example of this, um, and this is something I've talked a lot about on the uh, training courses I've run when I've been a speaker at conferences and so on. If you imagine a leader who is wrestling with a culture that has a tendency for people to be defeatist and cynical. Mm -hmm. If that leader were just to say to uh, the group of people they lead, look, we've got a very negative culture here. We've got to be more positive. I want everybody to be more positive. And everybody at that time says, yeah, great. We've all got to be more positive. But then as soon as that person leaves the room, the culture takes over and they say, idiot. 
Mm -hmm. uh, who does that person think yeah, they are? Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. not going to last long. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Now, you see, this, the, the fact that, that that's brought laughter in to, to you is significant because every time I tell that story yeah. to a group of people, that's the reaction I get is laughter, which is great as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's telling me something. That's telling me they recognize it. Right. They recognize it as reality. Yeah. Um, it's as, uh, and, and in fact, some people have actually said uh, to me, um, words to the effect of, of you being spying on us, you've been mm -hmm. watching us, mm -hmm. um, because they recognize that I've tuned in to an important part of their, their culture, if you like. Right. So, so the point I'm trying to make is, if a leader is not happy with an aspect of culture, then they have to change the culture, not fight it. Yeah. Trying to fight the culture means they will lose because culture, the reason culture is so powerful is we don't realize it's influencing us. Yeah. It's become the norm, if you like, for right. us. We just do it on automatic pilot. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing how quickly cultures to de develop. You know, you right. bring a group of people together and sometimes just within hours, you've already got a culture starting yeah. To, yeah. To, to form. Yeah, um, I tell them new hires, uh, you know, when I'm working with an executive and they just got hired and they're trying to diagnose, you know, a path forward. I said, look, let me tell you, you got at best six months at most. That's the best you can hope. And most likely within one week, people will understand exactly who you are and how to deal with you. And you will have you will begin by the end of the second or third week. You will be taught how things are around here particularly yeah. if you're not clear on your values and that you're understanding how to, as you said, shift gently the culture versus going in and just damn it up and say, we're going to start all over again. Yeah, very, 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 very much so. And I think linked to that as well, uh, recognizing that cultures form very, very quickly yeah. is they can also change very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people have said to me over the years, for example, well, it, it takes a long time to change a culture. And that can be true. It can take a long time. But in certain circumstances, cultures can change very quickly. So what's for the example, difference? Give us a, a bit of a why does it take long in one instance, but in another, we can see um, significant change in a short period of time. And is that significant change? sustainable yeah well for me i think there are two key issues there or at least two key issues one is commitment okay if people are committed to changing the culture they they want to change it genuinely um then that will make a difference to in terms of how quickly or otherwise a culture um, changes and the other issue is are there any vested interests Mm. Uh, for example, if I'm working as part of your organization and the way the culture works at the moment is I can get away with being very lazy and doing the bare minimum, if the culture changes, will I have to change? Will I have to work harder? Will I no longer be able to get away with doing the bare minimum? And if that is the case, then I'm going to sabotage the culture change. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try and hold on to our existing culture as far as possible. So for me, those are uh, two things I would want to check out. It's in to sabotage any culture change. And stay the same. 
And, and I want to say that, that, at least for me, you painted kind of two extremes out of it, but I think it's even more subtle than that sometimes because the vested interest in particular, you know, I'm getting something, I, well, let me rephrase that because I think every time we make a choice, we believe we're getting something out of it. That's why we make yeah. a choice. Yeah. Um, but it could be as subtle as I need to feel safe and safe for me is about control. And yes. so if I am predicting and controlling the outcome, then that's my vested interest is to hold on yes. to that feeling of power and ego because I'm smart enough. I know my function. Um, you don't know my function. You can't come in here and tell me how to be a good marketer or a good HR person or a good whatever, because I know what this is, or I don't want to look bad. If you're smarter mm -hmm. than me, then I inherently look bad or, yes. you know, or, and what I have done was wrong. And sometimes mm -hmm. because we don't think about it, and those are the kind of unconscious messages that are rattling around in who we are today. Those are things that go against both of what you're saying, whether I'm going to be committed and yeah. whether I have a vested interest. And I think vested interest probably is the determinant of my commitment, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, that's, that's what I was going to say. First of all, I, I fully agree with everything you've just said. But for me, I think this is part of the, the, the commitment question. Yeah. If people are comfortable with their existing uh, culture, mm -hmm. they feel at home in it, it's not causing them any problems yep. or any difficulties, then there isn't going to be the commitment to change it. It's, people have to recognize uh, what harm the culture is causing. So one of the things I talk to leaders about is the dangers of, and it's, it's back to this blame and scapegoating um, theme, is it's about looking at the culture holistically. Mm -hmm. What will happen is the, what is a problem in the culture mm -hmm. may be defined as a problem with an individual or with an outside source. Mm -hmm. So people say the problem here is we have incompetent managers, for example. I mean, that's something I've come across so many times in the... Yeah. I, I talk to the managers, and they're actually very competent, very capable people. Right, right, and right. It, but it's something about the culture that has painted a picture of them as incompetent. Yeah. Um, and so it's about looking at what is it about the culture that is creating this, this myth that our problem is one or more incompetent uh, right. managers. Uh, so for me, what I want to do with, with people is to actually get them to identify what in their culture is causing them problems. Because if they don't think the culture is causing them problems, then they, they won't want to change it. You know, that's not, that, that, not to, to interrupt you, I'm sorry, but it brings up, you know, that's really hard what you're asking yeah. them to do. That's not an easy for people to do. Do you have a tool or, I mean, how do you run that conversation? Well, there's two things, really. In terms of the conversation itself, what I try to do is give lots of examples of cultural problems okay. that don't seem like cultural problems until you start thinking in cultural terms. Okay. Uh, conflict would be an example. Okay. So what you will, you'll often have is two people, but neither, neither of them recognizes it as a conflict between them. Mm -hmm. So person A will perhaps be thinking and saying that person B is difficult and awkward and uncooperative, while person B is saying and thinking person A is difficult and awkward and uncooperative. Mm -hmm. So what they're doing is individualizing 
what is actually an interactional problem. Okay. Uh, the problem is not that either of them is being difficult, but that there is a conflict between mm -hmm. them. And it may be a conflict of what they're trying to achieve, a conflict over their values, a conflict over their preferred methods, a conflict over assumptions they make, until you actually get them to realize, no, this isn't person A's fault or person B's fault. The difficulty here is a conflict. I don't start thinking in more what I call holistic terms, seeing the big picture that is going on here. And the more examples I give of them, of, of this type of thinking, the more they start to think, yeah, this guy might have a point, actually. Ah, this gotcha. guy seems to know what he's talking about. Yeah. It, it all makes sense. And I yeah. think once I've got that credibility, they're more willing to listen. The conversation goes. But the other thing I do as well is some years ago, I designed a culture audit, I call it. And it's basically one sheet of paper which lists 10 aspects of a culture, like how open the culture is versus how closed it is. You know, so are decisions made openly or are decisions made behind closed doors? And for each of those 10 aspects of an organizational culture, there's a rating scale from one, meaning the negative extreme, and 10, the positive extreme. Okay. And I've used this in two ways. Basically, I can sit down with a, a senior management team and give each of them a copy of this um, sheet of paper and give them a few minutes to just go through it and score it. And then we, we talk it through. Mm -hmm. Or if they're brave enough, they actually circulate that uh, audit to their employees. Wow. And get their employees' perceptions of that. Now, as you might imagine, it's a fairly rare occurrence that that actually happens. But either way, whether it's just within the senior management team right, right. or across the organization as a whole, it throws up some really interesting things. Well, there are two, two sets of things in particular. One is it will identify certain themes okay. so that people won't have been aware of because the culture is something they're so immersed in, right. they don't even realize it's there. It's just right, the right, right. As, as the old saying goes, you know, it's the fish is the last to see the water. Mm -hmm. The culture just becomes their everyday reality. So when they start to realize, actually, we, there is an issue here that we have never thought about before because we just take it for granted. Mm -hmm. But So that's one thing. The other thing is that sometimes there are um, subgroups, if you like, so that what you'll have is some people see the organization as being, for example, very supportive, mm -hmm. whereas there's another subgroup that sees the organization as being very unsupportive. Right. I mean, I, I did this exercise with one organization a little while back, and what emerged from that was that they had a head office, and then they had satellite offices, and the people in head office, all well, not all, but most of them thought of the organization as the culture as being very supportive. Yes. Whereas the people in the satellite offices were saying they felt the organization was not supportive. Now, you can imagine for the senior management team, there was an awful lot of learning um, about their occurred, yeah. Something I often talk about is the significance of learning within a culture. 
because what my experience has taught me is that there are three types of culture when it comes to learning. Mm -hmm. The first is a learning culture, and what I mean by that is it's the type of culture that encourages learning and even expects it. So it would be seen as, for example, fairly poor practice on an individual's part if they weren't learning. Right. Um, I've come across organizations, for example, where if their employees are not showing that they're learning, developing, improving, then they are seen as not doing their job properly. Mm -hmm. Learning is a firm expectation. But what's more common is what I call a non-learning um, culture. And what I mean by that is where it's just a case of like heads down, get on with the job. Yes. And learning may or may not happen. It's yes. all left to potluck. Yeah. And any training that is offered um, won't necessarily be embedded in practice. Right. So you can have people who go away to, uh, to a training venue. They put a lot of effort into training for a day or two and then come back to the workplace and carry on as if nothing's happened. Mm -hmm. Learning is not embedded. So that's what I mean by non-learning culture. Yeah. It's paying lip service. But what you can also have is what I call an anti-learning culture. Oh, really? And that's where um, learning is actually seen as a, as a threat or mm -hmm. something that shouldn't be happening. Um, it's as if uh, learning is not only... Um, not valued, but actually perceived as a bad thing, as something that will, in a sense, rock the boat. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for example, when I first um, got my initial qualification, it was a diploma, and I then wanted to do further study to develop that diploma into a degree. Um, and many of my colleagues um, in an anti-learning culture were saying to me, what do you want to do that for? You're not mm -hmm. going to get paid any more having a degree mm -hmm. than you do for having the basic diploma. And uh, that sort of um, comment mm -hmm. is typical of an anti-learning culture. Okay. Another, another example would be perhaps somebody sitting at their desk stops to think about an important issue, and then a colleague might say, well, if you've got time to think, you haven't got enough work to do. Oh, yeah. That There's one is common. That, yeah, yeah. Thinking, yeah. planning, learning, yeah. developing are yeah. uh, sort of luxuries we can't afford. Right. It gets in the way of getting the job done. Right. And that's obviously you know, a very dangerous and short-sighted view. Right. So that's what I mean by the three different types of culture. Okay. Uh, a learning culture, a non-learning culture, but actually... An My last question really is about this. As you look forward um, over the next 18, 24, 36 months out of this, if you had to tell leaders one thing that they should pay attention to or do or stop doing, what would it be? Mm, good question. I think probably it's about knowing your culture mm. because by definition, people don't normally know their culture. It is the background we take for granted. Yeah. And as my work over the last 20 or more years has shown, so often where an organization is having problems, those problems are in the culture, mm -hmm. in the unwritten rules, the taken for granted assumptions. And so a big part of the work I do with organizations is to get them to think about 
what aspects of your culture are helping, what are positive, and what can you do to strengthen those? What aspects of your culture are problematic or um, uh, risky in some way that they could easily go, go wrong? And think about what can you do to minimize or ideally eradicate altogether those aspects. It's, it's, it's what I call building up and building on. So the idea of building up is build up those aspects of the culture um, that are, are, are not so, so good. So you're actually making. Well, I cannot believe that we've already hit um, the end of the program here. This has been very fascinating and I'm so happy that you have uh, joined me and generously sharing your knowledge and your expertise and these great stories that are so relevant today, particularly as we pull ourselves out of this pandemic um, and try to figure out what's the next um, way in which we become successful, we feel successful, we move into a more stable, uh, predictable cycle, if that is ever going to happen to us again, right? If you liked it, share it. If you didn't like it, share it. Because it will do nothing more than generate a conversation about the pros and cons. And in this case, you know, culture, authentic leadership, sustainability in an organization, and how do you manage high performance? And with that, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Neal, for your time. And that's a wrap, folks. See you next week. Bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.